Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. I have two lovely guests here with me, all the way from, where are you from? Um, Yoder, Colorado. Yoder, Colorado, the grand metropolis of Yoder, Colorado. How many are in your town, do you know? Uh, Three. Maybe. Three. (laughs) How many? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome? This is Alicia and this is Rihanna. Now, uh, is there anything that you'd like to say to your friends out there? We'll start with you, Rihanna. Um, just want to say hi to my youth group out in Yoder. Youth group, and you go to Antioch Church, right? And they're about to celebrate what? The 100th year of their birthday. 100th year of their birthday? That's when the church opened. So Antioch Church, I've seen pictures of it. It's really a beautiful old church out there. Is it in Yoder too? Yes. Yes. And Alicia, uh, Alicia, would you like to say anything to your friends out there? I'd like to say hi to my brother and my sister-in-law and my nieces in Japan. Hope they're watching. Konnichiwa. <laughs> now, uh, in, uh, I understand that there's some boys out there that you might be interested in. No? Some cute little Yoder boy? None that I'm going to say right now. None that she's going to say right now. And there's none that you're interested in, right? I've had daughters. I know what you girls talk about. No? All right. Well, that's good. Keep them out of your life. It'll be much better for you. All right, girls. Thank you for being on. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter on television, have them go to www.hotm.tv and they can watch from live streaming video from anywhere in the world, including Japan. I was a born-again Mormon, uh, kind of a book that got behind it all. If you want it for free, go to www.bornagainmormon.com and you can download a PDF for free and uh, have it in your hands in minutes. If you want a hardbound copy, I'm thinking another two weeks and we'll have them in our possession. And you can go to... Uh, bornagainmormon.com and order it that way or go to your bookstores and we'll start telling you which bookstores are carrying uh, uh, I was a born again Mormon again in this area and then uh, hopefully nationally. How's your personal Bible study? Uh, Join us every week for a never denominational uh, look at the word. We meet at the University of Utah and we also meet at Alpine Church on Sunday afternoons. You can go to www.calvarycampus.com Dot com, and you can find out information like directions, times, things like that. This is just a Bible study. This is not church. If you don't go to church, we'd love to invite you. 
if you're LDS and you're just trying to see if you what you think about it all, come join us. And uh, and if you already attended church, wonderful. Keep attending that church. Just come join us for a, a never denominational Bible study. Also on Sundays on KUTR The Truth AM 840, Heart of the Matter is replayed from 1 to 2 p.m. The Truth is an awesome Christian radio station with great programming. Comes out of North, I think, or maybe South Carolina. Uh, start tuning into AM820, especially Sundays from 1 or 2 p.m. for replays of Heart of the Matter. Just an FYI, our mailing address has changed. New address is 4760 Highland Drive, number 515, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84117. Again, 4760 Highland Drive, number 515, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84117. Hey, 2011, we are calling it Heart of, Ma Heart of the Matter, a year in guests. We invite Latter-day Saints. We invite Christians. We invite anybody who has something they want to discuss on the program to submit to us who, who they are, what they want to discuss, and uh, we'll start dialoguing with you and talk about being a guest on the program. We're filling up with uh, some of the major uh, guests. We're trying to get some LDS representatives. Love to have, I mean, of course, we'd love to have an LDS apostle or prophet or general authority. More than welcome. I'll give, you a, I'll give you a month's worth of shows if we can get an official LDS representative on the air to sit and talk with us. But if not, you know, Bob Millett, you, you like to go and talk at, at Christian churches with uh, Greg Johnson and you like to present your stuff there. Here's an open invitation, Bob, to come on the show. Or Dan, Daniel Peterson, a BYU apologist who gets online and argues with uh, uh, Christians and defends Mormonism. Love to have you on the show. And so we can talk about this stuff right here live. So all of 2011, it's an open voice, open forum to sit and talk, and, and I will treat you with respect. We will dialogue. I won't go at you like I do callers, but we'll just, we'll just talk about the facts as they are there. Two more very exciting announcements. First, this coming Tuesday, June 8th, Heart of the Matter, will be airing its first program nationally on Channel 378, the NRB Network. That's through DirecTV. Now, the times aren't the best. Right now, we're starting at 2 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Midwest, 12 a.m. Mountain, and 11 p.m. West Coast. It's a good start. We praise God for the opportunity. Finally, get your calendars out. We are going to have or announce our fifth annual uh, Burning Heart, or Heart in the Park as we used to call it. This year, we're going to get together in Bountiful, at the Bountiful City Park. It's a gorgeous and convenient location located right off Highway uh, uh, I-15. There's lots of shade. There's a huge stage uh, out there uh, for live music. And we're going to get a few bands, but of course, Adams Road will be there. Woohoo! And we'll also have all the usual stuff, play area for the kids, cotton candy, popcorn, subways for those who don't want to bring their own food, and open water baptism, which we did last year. More details coming up, uh, but Mark, your calendars, end of the year, Burning Heart 2010, Saturday, September 4th from 5 to 9 p.m. And with that, let's have a prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we need you all in our lives, and we seek you um, regardless of the, the churches we attend. I need your spirit to be with me, to keep me calm, and to be able to respond the way you want me to. Bless our volunteers, our audience here, and wherever they may be. Help the uh, technical issues that come with television to be uh, kept uh, at a, a minimum if there are difficulties. And just open up the eyes and ears of those who are seeking. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In the past, we have done a lot of talking about the methods men and women and groups use to trap people into what we call cultic uh, religious webs. Now, you'll notice that throughout the four years of the show, I don't use the C word, the cult word, when talking about the Latter-day Saints. Nobody likes to hear someone say that they belong to a cult. And so I, I am talking about concepts that are present in cults, and there are many Christian churches that have many cultic uh, approaches to things too. So I'm going to be talking about some of that uh, tonight. There are all types of cults out there. There's political cults and, 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 and social cults and things like that. Uh, but I'm prim primarily going to be speaking about religious cults, particularly within the Christian religious cult era. I am presently reading a very interesting book, and uh, I'm going to show this. It's called Raven. And on the cover of that book is a guy named Jim Jones. Now, Jim Jones, this is his life story, and Jim Jones was the leader of definitely a cult. And these guys were very, very involved for many, many years, dozens, I mean, uh, two decades of good works. I mean, they were known for their good works and their love for all races. And uh, Jim Jones ended up in the, in the jungles of Guyana uh, with 900 people dead, including himself. And, we're gonna, and so we're going to be talking about these religious cults and what what they do. Now there are some universal truths uh, and traits that exist within these groups. One of the universal truths, which we're going to talk about tonight, which the show is about, is how they come in and they completely absorb you into their system of things and they keep you very busy. You're always busy and we're going to talk about why they do that in a minute. Uh, here are some other general categories. Um, now, understand, not all of these traits need to be present within a totalistic group or a cult for them to be a cult. But the more that are present within a group and how they operate, the more you could determine that they are cultic. All right. The first one within the religious cults is they always deny the Bible in one way or another. They will always deny what God says somehow or some way or alter it. But Christians say the Bible is trustworthy in and of itself. Secondly, there is legalism or there's an alter, uh, alteration when it comes to salvation. Religious cults always teach that eternal life depends upon something other than or in addition to faith in the atoning finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Rather than relying on the grace of God alone for salvation, the salvation message of the cults always boils down to some required obedience or abstention from certain obligations or rites or practices or rituals, participating or not participating, even if some of those things include Old Testament practices. But Christians say that salvation comes by grace through faith on Jesus Christ alone. Three, cults, there is never an assurance of salvation. If there was, they'd be out of business. Uh, the issue of a cult's membership, the way a cult's member uh, lives is always precarious as to whether they are truly acceptable by God or not. They always wonder if they're doing enough. They always wonder what their state is. And then if they fall back because of some personal issue, they get mad or it's something worse, they think, oh, my salvation is lost. Where the Bible teaches truly that it's not our faithfulness, it's not our righteousness, but it's his faithfulness and it's his righteousness upon which we believe completely. 
For cults always have some guru type of leader or a uh, modern prophet that he or she is looked to as the infallible interpreter of scripture because they are supposedly appointed by God himself. Christians know that any man, any woman, any child in any place on this earth whether they ever meet a, another man or woman or not who's a Christian, whether they even have a Bible or not, can be saved by acquiescence of their life and will to God, the higher power they're introduced to. We know that God provides a way for all to know him and that men and women do not have to come in between us and God, that Jesus did that. He's our mediator and being God, we can turn to him. Cults, number five, also have vacillating or ambiguous doctrines or approaches. This means that in order to gain favor with the public, the cult's doctrines tend to be delivered in degrees. Um, they are often characterized by many false or deceptive claims concerning the cult's true ambitions or beliefs. Jim Jones did that quite a bit. And you might find a similarity like with the, with the missionaries, the LDS missionaries. You won't hear them walk up to you and say, we're sharing a message on how you can become gods. They just don't do that. They don't say, we want to talk to you about Joseph Smith and his many wives. They don't do it. What they do is they, they lead with doctrines. And they, what they say is it's line upon line, precept upon precept. I say it's line after line they give you. And until you get in there and you're totally involved, in which all cults do the same thing, and then you start to see what it's really all about. True Christianity is delivered warts and all. The Bible does not paint anybody in pictures of these, these highlighted themes. They are painted as, as they are, or at least as they should be. There is nothing to fear uh, in your search for truth by the facts. Nothing. Seek the facts, look at the facts, open the Bible. When you see that something's said, go and search it out, find it out. Cults maintain an extreme exclusivity or, or a complete denunciation of other competing groups. They are very uh, exclusive and elitist and they renounce other groups as being having any viability at all when it comes to God. Members of these specific organizations are taught that their church, their organization, their special community is the only true group or that, and that all other groups are false. And cults explain that it is impossible to please God or to live with God uh, without being a member of their specific group. They all do it. This is not, I'm not just talking about our topic of Mormonism. All groups do this who are bent on building their organization rather than letting people have a relationship with God. Christianity is non-denominational and it freely is open to all worshipers of the true and living God. Cults almost always lay claim to special discoveries and additional revelations. Jim Jones, as I'm reading, the guy was having all kinds of manifestations come to him, all kinds of revelatory stuff. In the early Gospels, much of John's writings were to the Gnostics. Gnostic mean, Gnosis means knowledge. And they were secret groups who said, hey, we know Jesus gave you this message, but come here. We want to share with you the Gnostic, the Gnostic Gospels. And let's tell you the secret stuff that you need to know. The fundamental characteristic of Christianity is that it is openly historical. It is openly historical and not at all dependent upon secret sects 
or um, private knowledge or special groups where this knowledge is passed only to you. Christianity uh, is open to everybody out there historically as a historical figure, but the cults love to claim exclusive revelation and it always seems to come or emanate by uh, visions, dreams, hallucinations, or some other unverifiable form. I say unverifiable because where the Bible speaks of real people from real places working around real pagan kings and real armies and countries, cult revelation does not. It exists on a fabricated uh, society, society that comes from the imagination of the leader. Next, cults have always endorsed a defective Christophany, a Christology. In other words, they twist the nature or person of Christ to some degree or another. Cults usually deny the deity of Christ or his humanity. They deny maybe his birth. They deny his eternality or the union of him being all man and all God. Uh, to Christians, Jesus is the eternal God incarnate. It is the eternal God in flesh, okay? Cults number nine also present an errant depiction of the nature of man. They will take human beings and they will say, they will present a picture that's somehow twisted and they'll say either, you're just an animal and you need to belong to us so we can make you overcome your just animalistic way, or they'll say, you're a god and you need to be a god or a goddess. Let the goddess within you come out, you know? Cults often use out of context scripture as proof text. This is a favorite trick of theirs. They open up the Bible and they'll use a single passage to justify an entire body of practice. They tend to focus on one verse and to the exclusion of others without regard to context of scripture as a whole. Additionally, cults are quite adept at using Christian terminology. They will say save, they'll say this, they'll say that, but in the end, when you sit down and look at what they really mean, it is not the same thing. Christians try, they should at least, take the whole Bible into consideration when seeking truth and not just a single passage. Eleven cults often teach erroneous doctrines concerning life after death. Uh, they have taught soul sleep. They have taught uh, annihilationism. They've taught purgatory, universalism, and the progression toward godhood. Uh, most cults deny hell or they embellish it to some way or another. All of Bishop biblical Christianity understands one simple fact about the eternal state of humanity. If a person is covered in the blood of Jesus Christ by their faith in him, they are saved and when they die, they go to heaven. If a person is not covered in the blood of Jesus Christ and they die, they do not. That is the Christian thing. There's nothing else to go with heaven or hell. Twelve most cults end up with a very twisted and entangled organization. You see, the less truth an organization has, the more elaborate their, the construct is of their uh, ministry or their church or the way it's set up. Let's think about this. There's a man in Uganda and he is living in the desert and he, someone find, he finds a Bible and he believes this is a simple truth. That's all it is. It's right there. And he is saved. That's it, okay? But then there's this monolithic, multinational, corporate religious conglomerate, and they have demands, and they have codes, and they have standards for admittance, and they have fellowship, and they have levels of progression, and they have all these things that start coming in that are necessary for you to improve and be right. The less truth they have, the more elaborate the system is, and you'll find that in almost every cult, which is closer to the truth. There is almost always uh, some financial uh, abuse within the cults. 
uh, or at least financial exploitation. Uh, 14, there is often some influence or tie, at least in their early history, to the occult. And if not in their early history, it usually comes in later. That's what I'm reading about Jim Jones. He started off saying he was a Christian, and then the guy started bringing in all kinds of occult-type stuff. And uh, finally, cults and cult leaders thrive off persecution. They love it. They, they embrace it. Uh, Jim Jones used to throw rocks through his own window and say, they're persecuting me. He would build these entire structures of being persecuted. Why? Because everybody would rally around him and say, oh, you must be on the truth because you're being so persecuted. Cults love persecution. They thrive off it. They use it to exist. And finally, cults place their organization and sometimes their leaders at the same level as God himself. Therefore, if a member decides to leave the group, they are not simply leaving the organization, but they are leaving God and his only true organization. Very difficult to do. We could go on and on and on. I already have a, a number of things associated with cults. Let me list a few others. There's little tolerance for questioning or critical inquiry. There's an unreasonable fear of the outside world. There's ecclesiastical abuses. Uh, followers often feel they are never good enough. Uh, there's demands that the leaders are always right and the leaders are never wrong, regardless of what the evidence shows to the contrary. There's uh, warnings about reading materials that are not part of the cult. And there's a constant thing of just stay with our materials. Uh, members have their primary identity tied to the cult itself and not to who they are as individuals. They are this, they are not that. And um, there is often a stilted and programmed-like ability to communicate. And it's shared by everybody within the same group. They all begin to mock, mimic, not mock, but mimic each other in how they talk and respond. And you can almost tell what group they come from by the way they do it. There's often a dependency upon the cult leaders for answers to every question in life. For every problem, for, any, for personal choices, they go to the leader, what should I do? And there can be an increasing isolation from family members, from people who do not believe like they do, there's more isolation and pulling away. All of that being said, let me go back to the element that our show is upon tonight. The tireless, never-ending demand upon the time and energies of its members. Within Mormonism, there exists an exhaustive three-fold mission of the church. One, to share the gospel, which is their missionary work. Two, to perfect the saints, which is to perfect yourself and your family, to get better and better, higher and higher. Progressive is the key word. And three, to redeem the dead. Speaking of work for the dead, the founder of the Mormon church, Joseph Smith, said, as quoted in History of the Church 4, 425, quote, there is no more credible, it, excuse me, it is no more credible that God should save the dead than that he should raise the dead. Meaning Joseph Smith said, look, it's, it's, it, it, if God is raising the dead from the grave at resurrection, then it makes just as much sense that he's out there and saving the dead once they have left this earth. Um, to perfect themselves and their families by serving in the church, share the Mormon gospel with others, and then they must save the dead. And the quote is, they must save all of the dead. Talk about the demands on time and energy. Take a look at this photograph really quickly. Uh, where should I hold this up? I should have told you I was going to do this. Um, 
I'll hold it up right here. This is in the Doctrine and Covenants manual, uh, student manual, and they have a picture right here. Can you show that picture? Is that coming up clear? What that picture is, is a bunch of people, and they're staring at tombstones. And they're writing down the information on those tombstones, and underneath it, this quote in the LDS student manual for the Doctrine and Covenants says that they are embarking on saving the dead. And so they, what they do is they go out and they uh, get information from tombstones and they record it. And then they uh, take the information and they put it into the church um, system. And then it's, they start doing vicarious work for the dead. Um, so that when all the work is done in the temple for one of those dead people and their information, they can choose to receive the LDS ordinances or not. How important is this genealogical work? Joseph Smith said in Teachings of the Prophet, page 193, the greatest responsibility in this world that God has laid upon us is to seek after our dead. Those saints who neglect it do it at the peril of their own salvation. Late President Gordon B. Hinckley said something absolutely burdensome about the, in the church news of July of 1999, listen to this. He said, our message is so imperative when you stop to think that the salvation, the eternal salvation of the world rests upon the shoulders of this church. When all is said and done, if the world is going to be saved, we have to do it. There is no escaping from that. No other people in the history of the world have received this kind of mandate that we have received. We are responsible for all who have ever lived upon the earth. This involves our family history and temple work. So let me explain to you and just kind of paint a picture for you the way I see it. Brother Billy Bob Jones is a faithful Mormon man. He takes his membership and his uh, uh, things that his leaders tell him very seriously. He's married to Susie Q. Jones, and they have three children. Billy Bob works very hard as an auto mechanic five days a week and one half day on Saturday. His wife Susie stays home as instructed by the brethren. Billy Bob spends the major part of his week at work, but he is also a scout leader for the ward troop, which keeps him very busy on weeknights. Billy Bob does his monthly home teaching, but not through a perfunctory approach to it. He does it like home teaching is supposed to be done. He's calling them. He's offering them blessings. He's going over and helping them. He holds family home evening every Monday night. He attends all his Sunday meetings plus ward council meeting. He tries to split with the missionaries once in a while in the evening so he can share the gospel, another imperative, as instructed. He drives his kids to early morning seminary uh, before he goes to work. In the meantime, Billy Bob tries to mow the lawn, pay the bills, make repairs on his own car and home, spend time with his children, be a good father, be a good husband to his wife. And then he's in a position, according to what's being told in these manuals, to save the dead. He needs to spend time trying to go and then save the dead too. All of that. The greatest responsibility, Joseph Smith said, in this world that God has laid upon man is to seek after the dead. This not only means doing temple work, but genealogy to find those names. And Jesus said what, my friends? This is the message. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, what does the Bible say about genealogy? Why is it so prevalent in the Old Testament even in Matthew and Luke, 
But then we read passages like 1 Timothy 1.4 where it says, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than godly edifying which is in faith. Or Titus 3.9 that says, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they un are unprofitable and vain. Let me give you a few insights. First of all, genealogy was extremely important to the children of Israel because through it they could determine who could officiate in the temple to sacrifice animals, to take the blood into the Holy of Holies once a year. Bloodlines were very important prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hence, genealogical work and genealogies being listed in the Old Testament like they are. Jesus' uh, genealogy was listed in the New Testament in Matthew and Luke so as to show who he came from, from David, which was prophesied. It had to be shown. But once he came and rose and the temple veil was rent in two, with the priesthoods being completely done away with and Jesus becoming our final and high priest who now enters into the Holy of Holies in heaven and acts as mediator to God once and for all, um, ancestral connection and genealogies are meaningless. The gospel is open to all, except the dead. That's the irony of it. Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined to die once, and after that, the judgment. Um, even in the Book of Mormon, it teaches this plainly. Plainly. Look it up in Alma 34, 32 through oh, 35. It talks about all about when you're alive, that is the time to find God because once you die, it's over. It's done. It's finished. Why is that so in the Book of Mormon? But now Joseph teaches that you can go in temples and do this work because his thinking was progressive. He was constantly imagining new things. They would come to him to replace the old and moving forward. I mean, who knows what Mormonism would be today had he been allowed to live? And so the Book of Mormon, which they tout all the time, teaches this thing. Now's the day because you can't get it afterward. But then later on, he started coming up with stuff with masonry and bringing it in that you can go into temples now and save the dead. Any Bible-believing Christian knows that religiously, there's absolutely no good reason for genealogical research because there's no lineal authority that is needed for priests in the temple anymore. Jesus is our high priest. And there are no ordinances requisite for salvation. There is no baptism. There is no new and everlasting covenant. There's no temple marriage needed for salvation. It's all in Jesus. And finally... Um, there is nobody who gets to embrace any religious uh, uh, ideologies or teachings or doctrines once they have taken their final breath. With all this being the case, then what is the reason the LDS have this genealogical, they have the largest genealogical research library in the world? Well, let me suggest a couple things before we go to the phones. 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. They want to keep people busy as bees because when you're busy as a bee, you do not have time to think. You believe that you are sacrificing for the cause and you are certain that you are earning something that God is going to be appreciative of. And you're going to earning God's love and you're earning your eternal life. And it just doesn't work. Two, genealogy is directly linked to temple work. And temple work requires 10% annual 
salary, hopefully on the gross, if you want to get in. You go and you do the genealogy work, you, as instructed, and you start seeing all your ancestors back there. You hear stories in church about how they're waiting for you to do the work. And so you say, I got to get temple ready. And you get temple ready by uh, being worthy and paying your tithing and doing all the other stuff. And then they, the, it's just purely a business model. Before we go to the phones, I want to read about an LDS defender of the faith. He's asked a question online. It says, if genealogies are as important as Latter-day Saints say, why does the New Testament tell Christians to avoid endless genealogies? The LDS defender said, the recording of genealogy is not evil or to be avoided. If it were, why would genealogical records be included numerous times in the Bible? It's very simple. We just explained it, right? He writes, God, God surely would never inspire Nehemiah, Matthew, or Luke to do something evil. So this is the kind of response you're going to get. And you need to kind of take the time to look and search it out and try to figure it out for yourself. Friends, it's a classic example. Uh, it's amazing. Bottom line, Mormon genealogy is just another form of controlling people, good people, who are trying to please God and trying to find a relationship with Him. Let's go to the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Grace Ann is leaving the LDS Church, my screen says. How does she start teaching her daughter about Christianity and leaving the LDS? Um, Grace Ann, what I would suggest is you teach your daughter through love, and you just bear with her. She might come around in... Uh, in time and her eyes might open. She might come around not even really willingly. She just might kind of follow you just because she sees that you believe something differently. But whatever you do, don't make it ugly in your home. And don't force her to go to the Christian church and don't forbid her from going to the Mormon church. You just, every time she's there and then you talk to her about what happens there and you just say, well, I just think Jesus is the important thing. And you just talk about him. And you just keep reaffirming what he has done for you in your life. And you never make it a, a point like this. Uh, because that's kind of what they want you to do. In your home, when you get mad, then, you, then the other person gets mad. And there's a big wall between the two of you. And then the church leaders can come in and say, see? See what's happened? You don't want anything to do with that. And they'll actually break up marriages. They'll break up families, which they're supposed to be about. I mean, we had a bishop tell my wife, leave the guy now. He's not, LD, he's not, doesn't want to be LDS, get out of there. Probably so he could marry you later or something. But <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but anyway, that's that. This is another question. Has Sean heard about McConkie's book being pulled out of print? Yeah, Bruce R. McConkie, the famous Mormon doctrine book, been used there and ever. They're pulling it out of print. They're not going to use it anymore. Why? Because McConkie told the truth about the church, and uh, it's not politically savvy anymore, and they're really trying to distance themselves from a lot of stuff. And I have no problem with a church changing. The Worldwide Church of God, uh, they did that, they changed, that's fine. But they don't change, they don't change their doctrine at all. McConkie said it as it was, nothing's changed. They haven't given new revelation. They just don't want that stuff to be touted and heard anymore. All right, we're gonna go to John uh, in Kansas City. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, uh, I just had a quick personal question for you. I wanted to know if, uh you know, accepting the Orthodox Christian view of uh, hell was kind of uh, troublesome for you, and, you know, leaving behind the uh, uh, Mormon uh, view of the uh, three degrees of glory? Yeah, no, um, that's a really good question. It's, and when we talk about hell, which is coming up, we're going to get into all of that. But, no, I, I trust 
in what the Bible says. And so it doesn't offend me that Jesus talks about hell quite a bit. And so I believe it's a real place. And it doesn't offend me that that's a, because I would have to call Jesus a liar or the Bible not trustworthy, and I, and I can't do either of those. So I'm perfectly fine with the way it's set up. I can say this, hell was not made for man. Hell was made for the angels who rebelled against God. And men and women are going to go there because they, they bottom line choose. So I, I, and the LDS idea of many levels of heaven are far more difficult for me because they're illogical. I can't understand the breaking ground between someone who gets to uh, be in between those kingdoms. It's just so strange to me. And just for our audience sake, John, uh, I know you may know this, but where the Bible talks about different levels of hell, okay, uh, Joseph made different levels of heaven. And the lowest level of heaven is where all the non-believers and where the adulterers and murderers and liars and thieves and everybody go. And it's a, it's a place that's supposed to be so glorious. So what Joseph did, he's just reversed it. And he, he kind of erased that vision of hell, and he made it three levels of heaven. Anything else, my friend? Well, uh, just a quick comment. I'm what you would call a uh, annihilationist. You are? Uh, yeah, and I just uh, wanted to say, I know that um, you were talking about the afterlife earlier, but I just want um, everyone out there to know, most people, uh, when you were talking about that view of the afterlife, um, you know, people think of the Seventh-day Adventists and the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, some other, like the Armstrong groups. Yeah. But, um, I'm a Trinitarian Orthodox Christian, and I just, my studies in Scripture have led me to believe that... Um, damnation leads to simply destruction. Yeah, I've heard that, and, and we know that we're not going to have any memory of those who, aren't, uh, who are in hell. And, and We know that from several places in Scripture, so you may be right. I don't know. I just don't want okay. anyone going there that I know, and I just want to share Jesus because he's the only solution to it. Well, uh, just a quick comment. You were talking about uh, you believe it's important for Christians to... Um, you know, examine uh, all of Scripture when making a decision about things? Yeah. Right. Well, um, one of the big things for me is that, uh, you know, the idea of hell that I found, I was raised Catholic, and then um, I went through a lot of changes, but eventually arrived at where I am now, and um, I just wanted to say that, you know, you look at the Old Testament, and there's no uh, description of a place of eternal burning, and, I mean, it to me, if the way that the Catholics and Protestants teach hell was in the Bible, I would think it would be a lot more elaborate than it supposedly is. Yeah, we don't know, but like I said, when we cover hell, uh, I'll talk about those eternal places and the, and the references to them and see what you think then. Okay. Thanks, John. Right, really John. appreciate it. You God, bet. Have God a great bless. Bye-bye. Listen, uh, we have a question here. How old do you think the world is, Sean? Uh, you know, I really think it's probably about 7,298 years, six months. I have no idea. You know, there's a lot of hills that people will die on. The Christians will separate ways. They'll part friendships and this stuff. How old the world is. Are you pre-trib, post-trib, amillennial, amillennial, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't really care, you know? I don't because I don't know. And no one else does either. So we do all these hypothecations. Evolution's another huge one. And, and they say, you're really discounting the gospel of Jesus Christ if you say evolution's in any form. And, and this stuff is just, I, I think it's nice to, uh, to investigate, but it's really love, my friends. 
It's love because Christ loved you and he saved you and you love others. So if I have someone who tells me the world is 6,000 years old, okay, it is. I mean, what do you want? Whatever, those things are side issues. They are just side issues. It's Jesus. He came. He saved you. He shed his blood. Do you believe it? And is he the Lord and King of your life? That's it. That's all I care about. So let God spank me when I get to heaven for being a bad representative of the facts that we don't know. Now, uh, this is from the Cedar City Daily News, and this is tragic. This is a picture right here of a, a, of a young man entering the MTC, and it says suicide impacts entire community. Now, we know people of all faiths commit suicide. Uh, I am not just picking on the LDS and because this kid was LDS, but what I am picking on is what the father said because it's touching. And he, he gets to a point, and the father says, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm really depressed that my son has taken his life, but I'm glad it's given me an opportunity to say this. And this is a quote. It said, PJ was a very good boy. He just had some demons. For us, people in this culture, we are taught at home, in church, in the schools, that nothing less than perfection is acceptable. That you have to be at the very best of everything you do and it's not spoken, but the implication is there. And if you don't measure up, your family won't love you. Your spouse won't love you. God won't love you. Friends won't love you. And that's a tremendous amount of pressure. I know PJ, PJ felt this way. You know, when you come up with a religious system that says it's up to you to be righteous and it's up to you to be good, and it's up for, to you to conform and you to progress, I tell you, there, you're going you're gonna to see more and more of this stuff because that's a false gospel. We live in a place that is so brutally tough and is so hard on people and it's hard on our children and it's hard on our hearts and, and it's so bad because of the fallen nature of this world and God didn't want anything to do with it that he so loved the world he sent his son down here to save us from this mess. And the son was so righteous and so faithful that it, it's not up to us to be perfect. It was up to him. And we, out of gratitude, we look to him, we have faith on him, we love him, and then we try to follow the things he said, mostly in love and faith. And then our works and our lives will come right along with it and we'll stop doing the evil things that we do. But, you know, it's really unfortunate in this culture this stuff happens. Michael is concerned about the Catholic woman who called a few weeks ago. He wants to make... Scroller, scroll, scroll, scroller. He wants to make, stop drinking before the show, I've told you. He wants to make it clear that per 1962 stance, you are only saved through Christ and not confirmation. What he's talking about was Vatican II Council. That's where the Catholics and the Lutherans came together. And that this woman who called, she was old school Catholic. And she was clinging to the old tenets of the Catholic faith when she probably didn't get news that in 62 they had this Vatican II Council and changed these things. And uh, so that's what he is talking about. We're going to John and Sandy, first time caller, line four. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how's it going, Sean? Good, how are you doing? Good, um, I was hoping to find the reference before you caught me, but I'm just flipping through my Bible aimlessly, hopefully you can help me. Um, I remember it talking about God being the God of the living and not the God of the dead. Yeah. Yes, could you explain that and how it relates to baptism of the dead? I think you could, yeah. I think it applies to all their vicarious, uh, vicarious applications to try to save the dead, redeem the dead. 
And I All think, right, and do you know what reference in the Bible that is, by chance? Uh, so baptism, baptism for the dead? Uh, no, where it talks about God being the God of the living and not the Oh, no, I don't. Uh, you know, if you just go on Blue uh, Letter Bible online and type that in, it'll tell you. All right. Thanks, but also, thanks, lo also uh, look at Hebrews 9.27 because that talks about the same the theme that was in the Book of Mormon about now is the day to get ready because when it's done, it's done. You know? All right, cool. Thank you, man. All right, John, thanks. Congratulations to, on going national. Okay, thank you. We're going to Jackie in Salt Lake City. Jackie is a first-time caller. Jackie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Jackie, turn down that TV. Hello? Jackie, you're on the air. Oh. Okay. Um. You got to turn your TV down, Jackie, or you're not going to be able to do it. Oh, okay. Hi. Hi. Um, my question is, um, where is the backside of the moon? Um, I was told that because when black people die, they're cursed, so they will go to the backside of the moon. Jackie, I don't know where the backside of the moon is. It's, it, 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 it appears every time it rotates. I don't know anything about astronomy. I don't even know how the planets spin. Does the moon spin or do we spin? I don't even know. Does the moon spin? They both spin. So we see the backside every, every now and then. Oh, okay. Jack, Jackie, uh, you from, are you from Utah? I am. Are you LDS? I'm born and raised here. Uh-huh. Well, thanks for the call, my friend. She's taking another hit. All right, we got another question here. Why do you think the LDS are so secretive about their finances? Well, I, I could get, you know, there's a really good book. It's called The Mormon Corporate Empire. I think that's the name of it. Yeah. Yes, Robert. And uh, John Heinerman, author. Anything else? No. And it's really a good book about the corporate structure of the LDS church and their finances. And you know, we, we, every now and then we get hit with, hey, how do you make your money? And we make our money simply by people donating. That's how it works. And the LDS Church, uh, you know, how do the 12 apostles make their money? And we've done a show on this actually, and you go down and you look at the boards they sit on. And all of them, you know, back in the day, like when I was a member of the church, Spencer W. Kimball era, all the 12 apostles, they all had like three to five to 12 to 15 corporate boards they would sit on, and each one of them would pay them somewhere between fifty dollars and $250,000 a year to meet twice a year and have a little talk. And so they were all on these different corporate boards, and that's how they got their income. And not to mention the books that they write, and not to mention the, the salary that they get for being uh, an apostle of the church. So, you know, uh, but that John Heinerman book, The Mormon Corporate Empire, I, I highly recommend you read it. Listen, if there's a lot, if there is a Christian in this state who subscribes to the Deseret News, you have got to cancel that. You cannot get the Deseret News. It's appalling. They have a section called the Mormon Times, you know, and, and this says, this article says the fight over the Book of Mormon geography. And it makes this big deal about nothing about where the Book of Mormon actually took place. And then on the front, it quotes an apostle actually Uchtdorf, who says, quote, Our Heavenly Father seeks those who refuse to allow the trivial to hinder them in their pursuit of the eternal. 
meaning don't question where the original lands of the Book of Mormon are. That's trivial. It doesn't matter anymore. When Joseph Smith was alive, he said it was the Americas. He said Zelf covered, he was a great warrior who covered from the west coast to the east coast and that, that the Hill Cumorah was right there in his backyard. Well, now we're not sure this is the Book of Mormon land, you know. On the back, they have a picture in the Deseret News of this woman dressed as a Nephite. And the, there she is, look at that. Isn't that great? And then you go on and it's just endless. How do you handle a Dear John letter if you're on a Mormon mission? I mean, the whole thing, this is the Deseret News. There's 35,000 uh, Christians in this, in this state. Abandon this thing, man. Do, cancel your subscription. Take at least the trib, I guess. Uh, all right, we are going to, um, we are going to, no, it says. No, we are going to uh, line two. You're on the air. Oh, is this Sean? It is. Yeah. Uh, this is Larry. I could talk to you before. You were talking about intermixed marriages between the religions. and yeah, I was well, the atheist that called. Uh, I, I wanted to tell you where I ran into problems with the Mormons. I was a member of the Demolay. I wanted to call last week, but my phone was down. I thought you did a real good job of covering the history and the facts of what goes on with that group. And, awesome. And what, I, what got me tonight, we were talking about the cults want to get into every aspect of people's lives. Yeah. What I ran into is with the Boy Scouts. They told me that I couldn't have my Tenderfoot badge unless I knew my articles of faith. I thought, well, that don't sound right. Wow. So I went, I went to the Presbyterian Church, and yeah, a couple weeks later I got my Tenderfoot badge. <laughs> yeah, so I, from a young age, you were, you were fighting it, weren't you? Well, I was raised half Mormon and half Church of Christ, and like I said before... Which half? Yeah, <laughs> between the two, I ended up with Heinz 57. Wow. Wow. Hey, um, uh, Larry, yeah. I heard a story from someone from their mouth saying that they couldn't get on the, the Little League team and uh, that he heard his mother talking to the coach and the coach said, well, if he got baptized, he'd have a much better chance. Well, I don't doubt that one bit. Yeah. I remember I was about nine when I heard the neighbor lady tell the kids that they couldn't walk to school with our family because we didn't go to their church. And I thought, oh, wow. boy, that's practicing intolerance, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing. Hey, great call, Larry. Thanks. All righty. Thanks, Bert. Watch okay. all the time. Great show. Thanks so much. You bet. See you, see you later. Next week, just to let you know, as a little preface, we're going to be covering the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, please, if you want to be a guest in 2011, send us your resume. We don't care if you're a professional or whatever you are. If you have a topic you're willing to come and discuss, we'll go back and forth. You'll sit down and you'll present why you're right, why this is true, whether you're a Christian, whether you're, a, you know, we invite the, 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 the Pentecostals to come on and say you must speak in tongues in order to prove you've been saved. We invite the Baptists who say I must wear a tie in order to be a real representative of Jesus. We invite any denomination and any group, LDS included, especially LDS, to send forth people who are willing to sit down and talk about these things, and then we'll uh, see if we can get you on. Nancy says here, Sean comes across more authoritative without the strange clothes. <laughs> Nancy, these are the clothes I wear in life. <laughs> these are not strange clothes. This is what I wear, Nancy. Um, and I'm sorry that you're under the impression, I realize that people like appearances, but uh, we're trying to get people to stop, Nancy, and to, 
check it out. We're going to run a partner spot really quickly and uh, come back and take more calls uh, and see you in just a second. I'm Sean McCraney. You're watching Heart of the Matter. Television is becoming an expensive proposition for us. And so we developed a program called Partners for those who are led of the Lord to participate and uh, are in a position to. Now, why? With all the great Christian ministries out there, would you want to partner with Aletheia Ministries? Let me give you a couple reasons. One, we try to use your funds optimally. That means every dollar is used to get the, the program on television, on streaming video throughout the world, on, in our archives, and now on Dish TV beginning on uh, the 8th of June. Second, Mormonism is growing strong. 65,000 missionaries every day knocking on doors, 850 people per day coming out of evangelical Christianity and joining Mormonism. Uh, finally, the Lord has blessed the, the ministry with great fruit. We're so appreciative. How to partner with us? Couple ways. First, you can uh, go online to www.hotm.tv and just look on how to partner and go from there. Second, you can call us at 888-868-4686 or you can write us at Aletheia Ministries, 4760 Highland Drive, number 515, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84117. We truly appreciate all of your support, all of it. God bless you as you consider partnering with us in the future. I think the best part of that spot was just hearing my voice and not looking at that picture. We have Marsha from Ogden online too. Marsha, you're on Heart of the Matter. Good evening, Sean. Um, I wanted to let you know that when that gentleman that just called about um, not being able to be participate in something because he, he wasn't Mormon or something like that. Yeah. Years ago, my family used to live in Salt Lake. Um, my brother was seven is was seven years older than I am. And he wanted to join the Scouts. And we weren't Mormon and I eventually joined the Mormon church and then came out of it but my mother was never Mormon or anything like that. And because we weren't Mormon, they would not let him become a scout because they said he didn't have the priesthood. And wow. it absolutely made my mother just livid. Because she was upset that they shouldn't have had anything to do with any kind of priesthood or anything like that. It's supposed to be a non-denominational type of function. I even think that they held the meetings back in the ward house back then, but I'm not sure if they still do or not. Yeah, that's wild. You know, Marcia, things have changed, at least in California, and it might be a, more of a cultural or a control thing here in the state, but in California, you can be a non-member, and uh, they've realized that by letting non-members come in and be part of the troops, that uh, it's a greater uh, chance to be able to uh, proselytize them and get them into the church. So in California, well, at least, they've changed that. Well, this was years ago. I mean, um, I'm in my mid-60s, and I wasn't, it was before we moved out of Utah, and we moved when I was eight years old, so you, you can do the math. Yeah. I, I don't understand, you know, quite frankly, Marcia, what organized religion has to do with anything like that. I don't understand what organized religion has its hands in the Boy Scouts of America. I don't understand why, why Christians are going out, and I know I'm going to offend people even in the audience, who are going out and, 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 and uh, fighting against abortion clinics and, and fighting against gay marriage. I don't understand what Christians are doing involved in all these social issues. Jesus came, and he did nothing like that. And we use him as our example for everything. But, it, but we, we kind of take his message and then we apply it to political issues and, and social reform like Boy Scouts and all this other stuff. It has nothing to do with it. 
I mean, exactly. he taught a message of salvation. That's what churches should teach. That's what they should be about. So I don't understand this cultic uh, invasiveness in everybody's life. Really good call, Marsha. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. I'm going to line uh, three, and I don't know who it is. You're on the air. Yes. You're on the air. No. You're... He's still talking to somebody else. No. I'm talking to you. You're, you're live, and you're, your television set is... Oh, okay. All right. I'm sorry. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I called to ask you if you were real happy with your Protestant beliefs. Are you real happy about it? Um, I, that is really quite a question. I am overjoyed, changed, ecstatic about my faith in Christ and what he's done in my life. Okay? It's the best I can say. Were, were you very, very sad or angry when you came out of the LDS church? What, what's that? Were you very sad or angry when you came out of the LDS church? Yeah. I, I had a lot of anger, a lot, and I had some sadness, too. My uh, family was still all LDS. It was a difficult thing, having been active for 40 years. So absolutely, but I want to make a comment here about something I think is really important. Okay. We do it every now and then. Happiness is circumstantial, and it's just, it comes and goes. And so when you're constantly seeking for happiness, you can find ways to get it. You're constantly seeking, but you can get it through events and circumstances and parties and people. Okay, but joy that comes only comes by God, and it's forever there. Now, they call parts of Utah Happy Valley, and it's because they live a life in search of this happiness, and they go to their ward events, and they have functions, and there's a unity and a community there, and, they, and there is a happiness to it. But Jesus, remember, he always talked about those who are going to mourn and be persecuted and who are going to suffer for the cross' sake, but I don't mind doing those things because of the joy that is within me. Does that help? Uh, yes. Um, another thing I was wondering, and maybe you can answer this and maybe you can't, but I've always wondered about it. Why, why don't all of the Protestant ministers come together and uh, have one, you know, big church, or at least, you know, state-wise, individually, you know, each state? Well, it's a good question. To, why don't they come together? It, you would think it would make them stronger. Or... Well, we only have 22 seconds left. But bottom line, Elsie, because that's the ways of man. God is very diverse, and he lets people approach him in many different diverse ways. And so these pastors, they, they have it on their heart to approach him in a certain way, and so they do that, and it might be different from another pastor who is led by God to approach him in another way. Great call. We're out of time. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Mm -hmm.